We're driving Mom and her four daughters to the Red Island, and we're reading part two of Dune to Lisa Frankenstein. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Offscreen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. So hello and welcome back to Off Screen. We have got five new movies to talk about this week. So let's dive straight in to Driving Mum. Now, um, I've seen some of the graphics for this. I haven't seen the trailer yet. It does look quite, um, how do I say, dark? <laughs> it's black and white, so yeah. <laughs> quite dark. 50% dark. <laughs> True. It was a literal half of the visual palette there, Mr. Paul, definitely. <laughs> um, I meant emotionally, obviously. Actually, yeah, I mean, emotionally, that's a fair point to make. I mean, so we're not going to have a clip for this one because it's like it's Icelandic. And uh, I, I should yeah. point out, I, I have a bit of a thing for Icelandic movies. I've seen some really interesting, wacky and wonderful Icelandic movies over the, what, 13, 14 years that I've been reviewing films now. And uh, no, you wouldn't think it, but the Icelandic <laughs> film industry comes out with some bangers. Um, I'm quite content to add this to that, to that you know, imaginary list as well. So, um, a new movie best described as a black and white dramedy, uh, written and directed by uh, Hilmar Odson, who gave us uh, Cold Light. That's the only one of his that I remember, uh, Cold Light. Weirdly, I remember Hilmar Odson uh, as, as more as a, a talking head figure in interviews for some reason than I, I do as an actual director, but Cold Light, I remember. So, um, this stars, let me find his name here. Okay, this is going to be fun. Uh, Good luck. Pro, pro store Leo Goodnesson, uh, Gunnison, I'm going to say, who is John. Now, John is, is a farmer, lives in a remote cabin with his mum, basically cut off from the outside world. He and his mum raise sheep, you know, uh, they, they is it lambing? How do they, what do they call the process of lambing? Is it lambing? They, they make the yarn, they, they they make sweaters and things. He and his mum together just sit in adjoining armchairs and, and knit sweaters together and they sell the sweaters to you know uh, traders who come and visit special. And then and that's his life. And this this life and this very isolationist existence that he has is is thrown is thrown into upheaval and upended when his mum suddenly passes, and his mum leaves him specific instructions. I should preface this: they live on the coast on on is it the east coast? I think they live east coast. Um, it leaves him specific instructions that she wants him to put her body in the car along with the dog and drive all the way to the other coast to basically fulfill her last wishes to, to, to get rid of her remains where she comes from on the other coast. And so what you get is this almost almost like Homeric Odyssey. I think that's the term. People people love to say Homeric Odyssey, as in Homer's Odyssey, uh, type, type journey out of this, uh, in which, say, black and white, divided into chapters, kind of thing, that the, each one is a sort of individual story, as, as this man, John, just drives his mother's corpse from one side of the country to the other, um, throughout the entirety of which she is articulated and talking to him. So he is literally imagining the corpse interacting and talking, conversing with him. Giving her, giving him her expertise on like I mean yeah I mean to be honest even death would not stop my mother from doing that if I'm honest 
<laughs> yeah, would you would that would not dying would not shut my mother up from talking to me in the back of a car and tell me what I did wrong with my life. Love you, mum, but we know it's true. Um, and I say along the way, he meets a various assortment of characters, meets a young lady, for instance, finds himself <sighs> becoming involved in the lives of others, and uh, and say so that's what it is. It's best described as this black and white Icelandic. Drama. Do you have to say more of a drama than a comedy? But there are some funny elements to it because you can't escape the absurdism of the uh, this absurdist nature yeah. of of this of this setup. Yeah, and I, I say I really love the, uh, the the central performance from. I'm going to read it again. Uh, Prost or Leo Gunnison, and uh, as moment you've got Chris Jorg Kjeld. These names, I struggle. I struggle so much. It's, it's, your, it's your J's and your Y's, isn't it? As, as, the, as the filthy West. Yeah. Too. Um, yeah. But great performances. I mean, they're both really in on, I think, selling the absurdity of it without necessarily tipping it over into parody. Now, on the directorial side as well, particularly with the cinematography of this, despite the lack of literal colour in this, what you get is a film that really accentuates the scenery of this Icelandic setting, that really goes to town on playing just how much of a one-man odyssey this is, how much of a into-the-back-of-beyond adventure this man really is. Because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lone car on these, these, mountainous passes, these mountain passes and big, wide-open spaces and, and looming mountains that really hammer home. The, the sort of the metaphorical side of what you're what you're dealing with here. I think it's a really good movie. I, I would watch this again. I, I could see this like winding up in, in a really weird way, as as a lot of you know uh, you know non English language films do, getting that obligatory English language remake. But at the same time, this is one of those that so perfectly with its specific tone and its specific pitch fits that Icelandic kind of vibe. A lot better than I think it would. This is not like another round where you could see they're just being a straight English language remake. You'd have to make some cultural adjustments, I think. And I really loved it. What well, question I have for you is: Why did they do it in black and white? And and would it take away something if it was in color? Well, I mean, it is a period piece as well. So it's set in. I think this is set in nineteen eighty. I think it's specifically set in 1980. Yeah, but we had colour then. Uh, we, we did, but I, I, we, hey, I, don't, I wasn't in Iceland in 1980. I don't know. Do you? I mean, <laughs> as, as it's not to judge, maybe colour TV came later. But as an artistic choice, it does kind of, it does work. It has that seventh seal kind of existential. That's it. I think black and white lends itself to existential stories quite well because it has that ye olde fable kind of thing going for it but also i think it i think it helps with again that absurd the the, the absurdity of selling the seriousness of it i think when his mum's in the car without giving away too much obviously i have this image that she's like in the boot shouting through the middle armrest in the back seat no, like no. where is she she's literally, she's literally perched up on the back seat <laughs> oh, brilliant well this is the thing because he does meet he does meet like a policeman and things along the way and they just pass it off as she's asleep mum's asleep in the back 
kind of a thing. That's brilliant. She's propped up with her eyes shut, kind of a thing. They just sell it as our mum's asleep. No one, no one questions this. I say, I, I really loved it. It's brilliant. I mean, it's the kind of thing. Be, be a great Paul Giamatti movie if you did it in English. To be really honest. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, the premise of it is definitely something I would like to see. Again, it's just something that I probably wouldn't get into very easily because Not it's got subtitles. That's the barrier for me. But if you want to check it out, you can. Driving Mum. It's in cinemas from today. We are going to check out two new movies next: Four Daughters and Red Island. We'll see what Van thought of those in just a sec. So stay where you are. Hello and welcome back to Offscreen. Let's dive straight in then with our next movie. This is called Red Island. It's out in cinemas from today. Um, I know nothing at all about this, so let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning, which is actually in 1970, I believe. So this is a this is a, a, a drama set in 1970 in uh, Tunisia, not Tunisia, uh, in Madagascar. Sorry, Tunisia is the next movie we're talking about. I'm getting my countries mixed up. Sorry, in uh, Madagascar. So uh, this is the uh, this is the island of Madagascar under uh, French rule. And this is when uh, when when the French this French uh, follows a coming of age story about a young boy named Thomas whose family have been assigned to the French military base on Madagascar. The film, incidentally, under its original title is L'Ile Rouge, which literally translates cleverly to Red Island. Uh, the idea here is your your young lead Thomas is obsessed with a comic book uh, called. A phantomette? I think she's the phantomette, which is your sort of standard vigilante, crime-fighting child character. We see it literally realised on screen. We see his 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 absorption of this comic story literally reenacted on screen for us, played by a ten-year-old girl. And the idea is you've got this coming-of-age setup where your young precocious boy loses himself in fantasy, but whenever he comes out of that fantasy finds himself learning more and more about the ins and outs of the adult reality around him, specifically brought about by the deteriorating, ever-widening relationship and gap between his parents, as well as certain other you know, adult figures in his life would be sort of, you know, colloquial uncles. You know that that mate of your dad's who you call your uncle, even though he's not kind of like... Yeah, like, like yeah, that. and then you find out when you're 15, they're not actually your uncle or auntie. <laughs> they're not actually your uncle or your auntie, and you really didn't need to let them get away with a lot of the stuff they did. Exactly that, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> exactly that. A lot of the things you saw them do was inappropriate. It's that kind of an auntie and uncle. So there's a fair bit about that. And I say about growing up in this a strange land in that time period, this strange land in that strange time period where, you know, escapism is at a premium. Um, some great performances here, uh, particularly from Nadia, uh, Nadia Tereskovich, I think her name is, and uh, Kim, Kim, I've got to look up his name, hang on, it was Kim Gutierrez uh, as the parents. But uh, young Charlie Vorsell, who plays Thomas, front and centre, kind of the MVP here, um, really good. But is shortchanged by a script here that really wanders off the beaten path. So you've got what I've just given you, which is you know the actual concept of the movie. That's your plot. What the actual movie chooses to do, though, is something very strange. I mean, your last twenty to twenty-five minutes, I'd say, feels like just going and like we've done with the plot. We're going to go and do this subplot for a while. It has absolutely no bearing on the rest of the movie. It has to do with you know one of the pseudo uncles, kind of the pseudo uncle's girlfriend. For lack of a, for, for want of a better term, and you're just like, like, what, what, why are you ending on this? I don't care. This was this was a couture mom. This was about the kid. 
Why are you? What are you doing? Now, it is um, written and directed by, I had this earlier, uh, Robin Capillo. Uh, Robin Capillo famously gave us um, 120 BPM, which was, I think, 2017, 2018, maybe? Uh, think about that. 120 uh, BPM was the, 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 the French LGBT drama, which was absolutely banging. This is not quite to that level. And to be honest, I say, I didn't know that until just now when I looked it up when we were talking off mic. If you told me that in advance, I would have been more let down, I think. I'm disappointed that that filmmaker turned this out because this feels a lot more disjointed and unfocused. The element with the comic book, with the the Phantomette, for instance, is something that, despite being a big part of the plot, doesn't actually come up all that often. Um, it, it really it's only something that comes up like three times for maybe a minute and a half, which is kind of flying in the face of a movie that has a near two hour runtime. And it, I say when you've got that combined with this weird emphasis, you know, closing emphasis on the subplot, feels like a movie that really needs to har- you know narrow down, hone in its focus, and you know, eye on the prize, get with the program. But for the times in which it actually does narrow that focus and get with the program, which is by focusing on the coming-of-age story. Absolutely cracking. First rate, check it out. When it doesn't, oh, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it. And it's maybe a third of the runtime, to be honest. Oh, so it's a case of gritting your teeth and pushing through it if it really does it become a movie you want to watch. It doesn't have subtitles, does it? it? Well, I mean, hence the clever title, Lille Rouge. I mean, it's a French movie set in Madagascar, so sorry, buddy. The first three of these this week are not for you, I'm afraid. The subtitle barrier... Oh. <laughs> okay, well, um, if you want to watch that, that is out in cinemas from today as well, if you want to go and have a look. Um, okay, let's move straight on next to Four Daughters. Now, talk to me about this. I haven't seen that there's anybody I recognise in it, so I can't really start with that. Well, you won't have because it's quite it is documentary, for one thing. It is a... <laughs> oh, yeah, under, I just country, noticed that bit. <laughs> under, under, under countries of... Because I couldn't narrow down like where the film had been made from like, one country that the actual film itself originated from. Uh, under countries of origin on um, IMDb, they do have it listed as France, Tunisia, Germany, Saudi Arabia, and Cyprus, which... That's quite a cocktail. Um, this is the, this is a doc- documentary with certain reenacted elements, which will be make complete sense in a moment. Um, written and directed by uh, Kautha Benhania, and it follows the life of uh, Ulfa. Ulfa, I think she's Haruni uh, or Harumi. She is Ulfa Hamruni. She is the mother of four daughters, hence the clever title, uh, or with a surname, I think, Chikawi. I think her uh, baby daddy's name was Chikawi. And um, the, the story here is that two of said daughters, prior to the documentary being commissioned, were radicalised, had, had gone away. They had effectively joined the cause of ISIS. They, this is a Tunisian family. They had gone, they had joined the Brotherhood, they had gone to Syria. They were a close-knit group of sisters. The daughters were part of a close-knit group of these four sisters. Uh, two have been left behind. And in order for this documentary uh, to, to, to basically be made, and for certain scenes to be reenacted, what they have cleverly done for the purposes of both the documentary, the reenactment, and the drama, is to actually employ the use of two actresses to replace the two daughters. And so you have the two younger daughters, for instance, effectively coaching the elder two on what it's like to be and what it's like to live with 
their sisters from how they remember it because both of these girls were, were quite young we're talking about like 10 and 12 or, or 8 and 10 kind of thing, when their older sisters you know went away and there was a constant fear for instance of said elder sisters coming back and taking their younger siblings with them because you know they they you know it was it was a very close knit family and the presence of these actresses on the one hand allows the catharsis that the family needs to deal with you know, this absence, this loss, and this trauma, but at the same time brings a lot more bubbling to the surface as well, forces, in particular the younger uh, the younger daughters, to relive things in a way that they weren't quite prepared for. And it's a fascinating, really moving documentary. As you can imagine from what I've just sold you there, this, this sounds like someone's therapy exercise, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, so you actually get to see them coaching them. In fact, yes, you you effectively do. Wow! And, but the, I mean, on top of that as well, getting this insight from you know young, vibrant women who effectively, I mean, in the case of the younger two, are barely past their teens. You know, would probably be at college or uni in the UK at best. But seeing them and hearing their description of the life and particular how the you know the niqab factors into or the, or the hijab whatever you want to call it uh, factors into their lives and how it was it was trendy for five minutes here but then we thought ah we'll give it we'll give it a miss for the next few years and now now it's coming back in this is how you wear it and things like that fascinating really fascinating and also they're just compelling they're compelling personalities Ulfa herself is the matriarch. And particularly her relationship with the second youngest, uh, you know, the second youngest uh, Aya, uh, the relationship between those two, because she views her as, oh, this is my clone. When I was when I was her age, I, I was her clone. And they they're posing for pictures, selfies together, and taking the same pose and stuff. And it's a really fascinating depiction of this relationship and how she gets to enjoy this closeness with her daughter, despite living with the pain and the trauma of her two eldest, literally still being incarcerated, I believe, at the time of this film's release. This came out last summer, I believe, in France. So it's been it's been kicking around for a while. But it's called Four Daughters, as I say. If you get the chance to see this, brace yourself, because I think it's a really interesting use of the, the documentary medium, combining it with narrative in a way that reminded me of something like American... I know very different kind of movies, but American Animals with uh, Barry Keown and uh, Evan, whatever his name is, from Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, we had that movie. Uh, Bart Layton's movie. Evan, oh, it'll come to me. Evan Peters. Evan Peters, that was it. Uh, Evan Peters and Barry Keown. Reminded me a lot of, of, of American Animals or uh, Imposter. I think Imposter was one from about 10 years ago as well, which was a French Moroccan uh, documentary. If you're a fan of either, either of those two, definitely check this out. But if you're just looking for something a little different, something, you know, a, a cut beyond your standard weekend's entertainment that's at the same time compelling, informative, fascinating, but also very moving. Four daughters, absolutely check this out. Really worth seeing. What um, kind of cinema would be showing this? Would you say? I think you're going to see this in your art houses. Uh, I think I, I saw this at Curzon. Oh, I'm trying to see it's Curzon Soho. I saw this at Soho House. Sorry, that was if it was at Curzon Soho. That was uh, Red Island. If you see it at Curzon Soho, you know it's only being shown in, in, in Curzon <laughs> cinemas. I saw this at Soho House, though. So this is art house cinemas. You can usually tell based on where they screen the film what the release strategy yeah. is. So this one was Soho House screening room. So that means art house cinemas. There you go. So art house cinemas this weekend. Well, there you go. That You can make your own mind up and go and see it yourself. If you fancy, just look for Four Daughters. Um, right, we are going to be back in just a second when we look at June Part 2. We'll see what Van thought to that. Stay where you are. 
Hello and welcome back to Off Screen. We've got two movies left. We're going to look at Lisa Frankenstein in a little while, but let's start now with June Part Two, which, of course, I notice uh, that there is a particular celebrity in here whose dad I know, Florence Pugh. I've spoken to her dad many times on my radio show, um, and I've never spoken to Florence, so I'm a little bit gutted about that. I want to know her mom. I, I want to know what her mom looks like. Honestly, what what's like a forty to fifty year old? Flo- I gotta know. I just gotta know. Anyway, I mean, because Florence is a goddess. She's my queen. She's Queen Flow. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's enough. Enough. Because I'll I'll go on a tangent. I'll go on a spiral. We don't want to go in that direction. Anyway, let's talk about part two of Dune, which. Um, good God, I'm not going to bury the lead on this one. It's so good. It's so bloody good. Okay. Um, I don't know if you did. You see Dune Part One in 2021? No, I was going to say you're going to need to rewind and just give me a quick 30 second recap of Dune One. Okay, so Dune as a as a whole, both parts of Dune are an adaptation of Frank Herbert's seminal novel from the 1960s of the same name. Was previously captured for film by David Lynch in 1984. In Let's just call it an interesting attempt at adapting the novel. It does not work at all. It's on telly, on on actual Freeview uh, tonight, Friday night in the UK. I've got it as my pick for Paul Ross's Freeview spot this week, and it stars Sting, the original 84 version. Prior to that, there was an attempt by Jodorowsky, uh, which didn't get off the ground, and there was a fascinating documentary called Jodorowsky's Doom about that. But this comes to us from Denis Villeneuve, or Villeneuve, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, who previously brought to the screen uh, Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, uh, I think it was uh, Enemy or Enemy Within with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, and Prisoners with uh, Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. Now, the first what he has done is effectively split that novel into two halves. The first half we got in 2021 during that ill-fated period in which uh, Warner Brothers were putting things in cinemas but also putting them on HBO Max the same day. Uh, Dune was one of those. They had to pay a, a hefty uh, bonus uh, check out to uh, Denis Villeneuve for that one. Uh, but the film made an ungodly amount of money, despite the fact that it was all set up. It was all set about two and a, two and however many minutes worth, two hours and however many minutes worth of, I think it's about two hours fifty of pure setup. The sum total of which amounted to. In a galaxy far, far away, there is a desert planet, and the sand of this planet produces uh, a, a, a mineral called the Spice Melange. And all of the warring houses of this space dynasty uh, vie for control of the mining operation on this planet. Said control falls, for the purposes of our story, under House Atreides, led by the Duke Leto Atreides, who was played in the first one by Oscar Isaac. And he has a young son, an heir apparent, young Duke... Uh, Paul Atreides was played for the screen in this incarnation by Timothy Chalamet. He was previously played in the Lynch version by none other than Kyle MacLachlan, King of the Chins. Kyle MacLachlan, showgirls god. Kyle MacLachlan. I believe he was in Sex and the City. He's known for that at some point as well. Twin Peaks, Kyle MacLachlan. But alas, Timothy Chalamet. He's not quite Kyle MacLachlan in my books. But he's an up-and-comer. Anyway, Chalamet, a.k.a. Wonka to everyone else. Um... In this, uh, in the first movie, was effectively driven from his his new home when one of the rival houses, uh, House Harkonnen, led by Stellan Skarsgård as the evil sleazy Baron Harkonnen, led an attack that uh, decimated his family, left he and his mum out in the desert. Flash forward to film number two, 
in which you've effectively got the Ben-Hur, Spartacus, Last Samurai part of the story, in which Paul sets himself up amongst the natives of the planet Arrakis, where the planet on which the spice is mined. In its native tongue, it is called Dune, hence the title. Uh, he finds himself effectively the chosen one. He is prophesied to lead the people in a rebellion to take back the land, to basically restore Arrakis to what it, the green and fertile land that it was meant to be millennia previously. But of course, he has to prove himself to the natives. He has to win his seat at the table, whether he wants it or not. And all of this is complicated by a series of visions that he has of the future as he falls more and more under the influence of the Spice Belange, which works as both a psychotropic drug and a fuel source in this universe. So it's basically like petrol that gets you high is the way to describe it. But these visions he's having, I mean, could you imagine you down the petrol station, like, one for you, one for me, like Homer Simpson. Petrol you know? <laughs> <laughs> put in the mouth, you know, one for you, one for me. The Homer Simpson version of that, that alcohol fuel is, is effectively how Spice Melange works. But these visions are giving Paul um, a horrifying nightmare look at the genocide that his rise to power can potentially lead him to. And it comes down to a moral choice. Is the greater good for the galaxy worth the loss of life that it might bring with it? I've got a clip for you. Have a listen. It's breathtaking. When you see sand here, imagine water. If you dive in, you can't reach the bottom. You dive in? Yes, it's called swimming. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe you. In the shadows of Arrakis lie many secrets. But the darkest of them all may remain. The end of House Atreides. Your father didn't believe in revenge. What if Paul Atreides were still alive? I've got a feeling that this movie is right up my street. I mean, it looks very Mad Max. It doesn't sound very Mad Max, but I mean, it, I mean, yeah, this is my kind of movie. Lawrence of Arabia. That's the thing I'm going to compare it to. Lawrence of Arabia yeah. or Ben-Hur. It has that level of epic. First of all, um, I'll talk about the, the filmmaking before I talk about the performance, because the performances are great. I mean, with a cast like this, they kind of have to be, but we'll get to that cast in a moment. Um, so, the filmmaking. Wow, jaw on the floor stuff. This is a level of amazement and just absolute astonishment at the technical wizardry I'm watching. Despite having seen the first one, which is an excellent movie and really showed you some great visuals. But this, this took me back to Inception Gravity. This took me back to the early 2010s. And that level, that was the last time I remember science fiction on a visual stage being this absolutely stunning. This is like nothing. I mean, maybe uh, Blade Runner 2049, obviously, make an exception for that as well. Um, but uh, you notice that Villeneuve comes up, you know, there as well. I mean, he very much is that guy. Uh, cinematography by Greg Frazier, who's giving it some pure Roger Deakins energy. That score you could hear in the, uh, you know, the ah, kind of, you know, uh, wobbling tribal stuff that you can hear in the in the score there all Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer's you know shown up to play this is that meme of the guy playing the piano on fire on the beach this is very much that in cinematic form uh, I think the story is more engaging than the first one it's much more of an action driven film but it also deals with that moral quandary that Paul's going through a lot more than you, you kind of got in the first movie the first movie was all play setting there's a lot of characters who appeared in that first film who don't appear here 
And that's when you get to that cast. And obviously, there's no uh, Jason Momoa in this one because he was kind of done away with in the first one. There's no uh, uh, Oscar Isaac because he was kind of done away in the first one. Um, there's, there's various cast members who do return, though. You, for instance, Javier Bardem, who manages to absolutely steal the film outright, shows up as the leader of the you know supposedly savage Fremen. And the guy has just shown up ready to play. He's got the pathos and, and, and the gravitas of it all down, but he's just got this wry humour to it that reminds me of sort of like Jeffrey Rush, Jeffrey Rush in, in Pirates, in the first Pirates movie, when he was Captain Barbosa, and, and you're like, there's something to yeah. this, but, but it really works. Uh, and then you've got uh, Chalamet, who really wins me over with the weight, sort of making it investable, just the level of weight that he's under as he's as he's getting to grips with this prophecy, with this responsibility, with this destiny that's being thrust down upon him, whether he wants it or not, and also having to make the hard calls for the greater good. You've also got then Rebecca Ferguson, who just gets to go into full hippie goddess mode here. No other way to describe it. As the sort of mother superior of the space nuns, for lack of a better term. And then, and then, there's Austin Butler. And uh, Austin Butler is known to most of us, I think, still as Elvis, really. He's, he's kind of still Elvis to a lot of people. Uh, to a certain a bit more current audience, my mother included, uh, he's the star of Apple TV's Masters of the Air. Uh, here, he's playing the Sting role from the Lynch version. He's the Baron's evil nephew. Uh, you know, bald head, hairless body, getting bald head, absolute psychopath, still doing the Elvis voice, weirdly. Uh, but, oh, God, he kills it. He absolutely kills it. Everything about the movie, I think, is great. Now, I am going to point out that I was able to take a couple of my boys along to uh, the premiere for this with me. It was a pure entourage moment, you know, just rocking the rocking the car. <laughs> In your suits. Yeah, it was It was like an episode of Entourage. I love those nights when we get to do that. Like I say, you, you feel like Vinnie Chase in that moment. Um, but one of my friends, uh, Will, is a dyed-in-the-wool uh, Frank Herbert fan. And he came out spitting fans. Oh, it's, they've missed this now, they've missed that. And everyone else was just... Shut up, it was really good. Like, shut up, just go back to your book, loser. But you know, it's like, oh, there's no spacing guild. Like, no one cares. No one needs the spacing guild, bro. Like, no one's, no one else hanging up on that. But I thought it was a breathtaking film. I think they're best watched together, but because it is, it flows as one film, to be perfectly honest. They both flow as one complete film. There is a setup for a third installment, which apparently will be adapted from the second novel, Dune Messiah, I believe. And as such, An Anya Taylor-Joy, in a moment that baffled the hell out of Google when they asked uh, who is Anya Taylor-Joy playing, and Google responded, she's playing coy because it had been put in an article that she was playing coy about who she was playing in the film. So that Google interpreted her role as being coy Atreides, Brilliant. Well done. <laughs> AI is genuinely going to take over the world, people. Um, <laughs> but, um, Anya Taylor-Joy yeah, in there is a, a very fleeting cameo setup for what might be yet to pass in the third installment or second book adaptation. But if you can watch this, this is going to wind up being a five-hour, five-hour-plus epic, which will play to science fiction fans the way that classic cinephiles look at Lawrence Arabia and Ben-Hur. I genuinely believe that. I think it is easily going to be the spectacle of the year. I can't see a big-budget blockbuster dazzling on a technical level quite like this again in 2024. I can't see that at all. It's a film that, come next year's Oscar cycle, will be up for every technical award going. 
I don't think it's going to be up for best picture, best screenplay, like that. But you are going to see comments in there for best visual effects, nods for uh, your best cinematography, things like that will inevitably befall this. I think it's an absolute barnstormer. It is everything I hoped it would be and more. And I loved the first one, but this absolutely crapped all over it. And when I watched the first one back afterwards, I came away going, God, that was all set up, wasn't it? I mean, it was all right. It was good fun, but it was all set up and it's not a patch on the second. If you were on the fence after Dune 1, go and see Dune 2. If you loved Dune 1, go and see Dune 2. If you're a loser who's never seen any Dune, watch the first one and then see Dune 2, obviously. But it's just see Dune 2. It is really something. I loved it. Two resounding thumbs up from me. This is cinema. This is hashtag pure cinema. And it's not very often you get a sequel that is better than the first. And I know you're going to list a few now, but, I mean, you know. It's not, really, it's not really a sequel, is it? It's a sequel in the way that Kill Bill 2 is a sequel. It's the other half of the story. Right, yeah. Um, I will yeah, add the other, one, yeah. One last thing I will add, though. Pay the extra. See it in the PLF format, your IMAX, your super screen. Do whatever you got to do. See this on the biggest, loudest screen you can. And a friend of mine did comment about the sound system in the IMAX. said, I'm really glad I didn't have a insert sex toy name here in during the t- during the watching of this because I'd have felt that. There is a lot of boom <laughs> work going on in this. A lot of wah kind of thing happening. Absolutely brilliant. Well, you've sold it to me and if he sold it to you as well, it's in cinemas right now. Go and check it out this weekend. Dune Part 2. Right, our final movie coming up. Lisa Frankenstein in just a bit. Stay there. Welcome back to Offscreen then for one last ride. We are now going to dive deep into Lisa Frankenstein. So uh, basically, she falls in love with a dead person. Effectively, yes. Dive deep into Lisa Frankenstein. Really? Really, Adam? <laughs> you didn't mean it that way. You aren't you? Right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, interesting thing about this, this is the first feature directorial effort from director Zelda Williams. Uh, Note to the surname there, Williams, daughter of Robin. Robin Williams' daughter has gone into directing. Yeah, and uh, this comes comes to us. uh, This is an original story um, in, in a screenplay written by Diablo Cody. Now, Diablo Cody, if you if if you're not familiar, um, is um, she was kind of a, a big deal in the late 2000s, in, in the late noughties, because at that point she was the screenwriter for Juno and Jennifer's Body, which were kind of yes. two seminal works of, of that era. She kind of faded from obscurity afterwards, to be honest, because I, a, a lot of cinephiles kind of had a bit, you know, kind of had it with her, to be honest. Uh, Family Guy famously described her as, uh, what was it, a stripper who got lucky once. I believe, was the, the term that Stewie Griffin came out with. Because the whole thing was that she'd been an exotic dancer before becoming a screenwriter. I don't really think that has any bearing whatsoever, but it does give her a great uh, great handling of sexuality in her work, which does come into play here, and certainly did in Jennifer's body. Uh, this is kind of a spiritual, uh, spiritual side piece to Jennifer's body, albeit a period set one. It's set in 1989. Um, so has a kind of a similar tone to Jennifer's body, and it stars Catherine Newton. And I think, what would she be known for now? She was one of the daughters in Blockers. She's Castiel's daughter in Supernatural. She was Ant-Man's daughter in Quantumania. She's basically, she, she plays daughters a lot. And uh, she is Lisa, not named Frankenstein, obviously, but she's Lisa, who is a, basically, 
she was a goth before they were goths, effectively. So it's 1989. She's really into her music. She loves The Cure and Morrissey and things like that. Bit of a goth. And for peace and solitude, to get away from the bubblegum life, that suburban life that she finds so hackneyed and tried, she goes and hangs out in a local graveyard where she finds herself infatuated by one grave in particular and the statue of its occupant, this hunky young man who looks an awful lot like that boy from Riverdale, uh, Cole Sprouse, looks a bit like him. And she reads him stories um, and she, you know, she draws, you know, draws things, draws you know, romantic images of the pair of them and writes him love letters and things like that. Doodle Lisa Frankenstein, because his name is Frankenstein on there. Uh, and one day, whilst wishing that she could be with him, fate and a green storm in the sky decide to give her her wish. She she will, in fact, get to be with him. But not she will go and be with him in his time. Or, as she means it, she'd like to be in the grave with him. They actually bring the contents of the grave to her. So he is actually reanimated from the dead and brought into her world. And he starts out as a sort of, you know, mostly decomposed body, missing a hand, for instance. But as time goes by, they learn that if they simply take someone else's hand and put it on his and electrocute him, he gets his hand back. And over due course, this desire to connect with him leads her to committing more and more atrocities in his name to basically bring her love closer in line with humanity. All of which plays out with a sort of wacky, almost Tim Burton, Beetlejuice-esque tone and leads to moments of discussing the cure. Like this. That's my dad's shoe phone. He got it for free with a subscription to Sports Illustrated. Do you like this, um, song? Do you like any other music? I have the cure. Oh. band they can't make you better i mean they can but emotional of course that just that just made me realize actually there's got to be moments where depending on how long he's been dead that he he doesn't understand things of of the today world there's a lot of that kind of yeah, a lot of that going going through it um cole sprouse who plays the creature as he's called here do you know what? Actually, this is I, I really something. I, I did not expect this. Because, you know, you hear, like, you know, it's, it's the teen actor from Riverdale. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. Unless he's the next Charles Melton. I could not give less of a flying fig. But it works. It really does work. Um, if you're a fan of Jennifer's body, this is unmissable stuff. I don't think it's as good. And it's certainly not as nasty as uh, as Jennifer's body was. Um, it's a lot more lighthearted, a lot fluffier, but it still has that dark, grisly, gothy tone to it. So it's, it's, just, it's deservedly rated 15. Um, given the period setting, as you would know, as, as I'm sure you're no doubt already suspecting, yes, great soundtrack. It kind of has to be. Um, but there's yeah. quite a good supporting cast in there as well. Uh, my MVP, though. MVP. Oh, the ageless goddess that is Carla Gugino. Oh, I love Carla Gugino. Uh, also an Entourage alum, if we're, uh, if we're keeping tabs. She played uh, Amanda in Entourage. Just keeping it 
keeping it with the boys there. Um, but yeah, this is described as a coming of rage love story. And I can't think of a better way on which to describe, you, you could describe this, the coming of rage love story. Perfectly that. Um, but I would say this is some, one that I think is very much going to find its home with a demographic and an audience comparable to its lead character, which is effectively teenage girls who like that the alter the alt gothy stuff. Fair play. This is going to become kind of a, a, a revisit. This is going to become one of those gets into the rotation that gets revisited a lot. I don't think as often as Jennifer's Body, which I would argue is still, uh, given that it takes place closer to the present day, I think still holds more relatability and still holds more weight and also nobody in this film has anywhere near the charisma that megan fox had in in jennifer's body to be fair or or adam brody if we're being really honest um but as a debut film for zelda williams terrific as a new work from diablo cody very very good it doesn't quite deliver on all of the macabre potential that it has but the little it actually does, it really goes to town on, and it, it, it makes good on, I think. Well, I mean, I've got the trailer running in the background while chatting to you, and every time I look at it, there's something crazy going on. Like, it looks like a really fun movie. Yeah, it, it is, it's quite fun. It's not as fun as you want it to be. Say, there's a lot of unexplored potential in it, and... <sighs> I, I found myself, I came away from it thinking, hey, it's a three-star kind of thing. There's moments in it that levitate it up, that one extra star. But I think there's there's a lot left on the table. And I feel, like, I feel like it might be trying to be too many things to too many people. Whereas you look at something like Jennifer's Body, for instance, that was quite uncompromising. And I feel like this needed a bit more of that fearlessness. It feels a little bit more restrained. I think perhaps because it has a slightly younger cast, that might be a factor. I mean, is I say, this is 15 years removed from Jennifer's body. We are in a very, very different industry now. But I would argue that with films like Saltburn, poor things out there, the time is right for another Jennifer's body. In the meanwhile, though, you have to settle for Lisa Frankenstein. Well, you can watch it whenever you like because it's out in cinemas from today. I already know the answer to this, but what are you going to go for movie of the week, Van? Oh, ain't nobody doing it like uh, Denis Villeneuve, so Dune. Yeah, that's it. That's my pun. Ain't nobody doing it like uh, like villain. There you that's go. It. Yeah, that's what I'm going with. I'm I'm not ashamed of that. Dad jokes and not even a dad. Uh, right, okay. <laughs> so uh, let's have a quick look at some of the movies you've got coming up next week. Because I know there's one you're really excited about. Mm, there is, uh, but before we talk about that, do not expect too much from the end of the world. Is next week. Uh, I don't know what to make of this. Romanian filmmaker who has made this. Abs- it looks like an absurdist surrealist comedy uh, that stars, of all people, disgraced filmmaker Uwe Boll, legendarily thought of as one of the worst filmmakers to have ever you know held a camera. Uh, we've got that to look forward to next week, as well as a documentary called Copa Seventy One, which is uh, about the British women's football team which effectively tells the story of all of the recent fandom that has emerged around them. Turns out they were great before that, you Johnny-come-latelys. And this is the documentary that's going to show you exactly how good they were. So we can look forward to that. We've also got an animated movie that I think has Stephen Fry. I'm not sure about Stephen Fry, but it does have Marion Cotillard and Daisy Ridley providing voices. It's called The Inventor, and I believe is about the adventures of Leonardo da Vinci in Paris. So... 
Yeah. Uh, we've also got Origin, a uh, new movie from Ava DuVernay, but that ain't the one I'm looking forward to. What I'm looking forward to is the return of John Cena to comedy alongside Zephron. Zach Efron, it's been five minutes since the Iron Claw, and our boy's back. Zephron's back. Um, Ricky Stanicki. <laughs> Is next week. This is it's Amazon Prime's new one. They're, they're going quite hard on this one, and based on the trailer, I can see why because it looks like this is like Cena in full Agent of Chaos mode. I cannot wait. It looks a lot. It looks really fun, actually, and I do love the synopsis on it. But I'm not going to give too much away. Uh, so we will look at all of those next week. That is, of course, all we've got time for this week on off screen. We shall return next week. Until then, I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor and we'll be back. 